Hello, I'm Adrian Wooten, Chief Executive of Film London and the British Film Commission, and I'm your host for Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London, our new podcast series where we talk to creative talent from across the screen industries about what they've created and how they've created it. In this week's episode of our six-part series on genre, we're looking at comedy, which is about a whole lot more than just making someone laugh. From the direction, to the editing, to the acting and beyond, a pitch-perfect comedy requires expert craftsmanship from all involved. This week, we're talking to Marley Morrison and Michelle Antoniadis, the director and the producer of Film London microwave film Sweetheart. Sweetheart is the feature debut for both Marley and Michelle after working on shorts for the last decade and won awards at film festivals in Glasgow and Toronto before its UK cinema premiere last month. We also have Sarab Kakar, executive producer at Big Talk and former head of comedy at ITV Studios, as well as being a current Film London board member. As a comedy producer for the past 20 years, Sarab has most recently produced The Goes Wrong Show for the BBC. First, here's Molly Morrison and Michelle Antoniadis talking sweetheart and bringing to life your first feature film. Molly Morrison and Michelle Antoniadis were interviewed by our Head of Talent Development and Production, Jordan McGarry. You coming in, AJ? No. Why? I used to love the pill. Oh, read it. Liz? No, get out of the sun. Oh, you big bore. Mum says I was supposed to be born a boy called Aaron. I think about him sometimes and how much easier his life would have been. I need to go to the toilet. Ask Mum. We both know she's going to get you to take me. Hi. 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 <laughs> um, I'm so, so, so pleased to be talking to you two today. I feel like we've all been on a long journey and you guys have just been absolutely crushing it lately. But before anything, I'm going to take it all the way back to the very beginning. I think one of the things that we hear so often from new filmmakers is that they want to know how to meet collaborators, how they can find the people that they're going to make their work with. You guys are such a phenomenal team and you work so brilliantly together. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you met? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we met, I believe we met on the street in Soho. or in a, um, I think, yeah, we met through a mutual friend that I was working with at the time. Um, I was kind of just trying to make silly vines and uh, thought about being a filmmaker and kind of trying to make some um, some music videos, some other little bits and, and short films and stuff. And, um, and yeah, and I, I ended up meeting Michelle just sort of by chance and uh, and we kind of ended up just talking for ages and we kind of both felt like, I think, after that meeting that we were really sort of on the same page about where we wanted to go and what we wanted to do and... Um, and we were both sort of at a similar stage, I guess, in our careers of wanting to kind of take it to the next level and, and, and make our own stuff. Um, let's talk about Baby Gravy, which is the first time that we worked with you guys. And we just fell in love with you as a team and we loved the way that you wrote, Marley. Um, but also you had, you know, that was a, a great short film that you made, sort of it was your last short film. Um, what? Let's talk about short films generally and what that background in short films and then particularly Baby Gravy did for you um, in terms of getting you ready to make features? 
Yeah, I mean, with Baby Gravy, it was kind of um, a bit of a kind of chance film, really. Up until that point, I'd only really made stuff, which was a few hundred quid, if that, and a very small team of people. And um, I'd made a film sort of crowdfunding, crowdfunding money. Um, I made a short called Leroy. And then and then we saw the, I think it's called London Calling. It was um, the short film scheme for, for Film London. And we thought, oh, you know, let's let's chance it and, and, and send something into that. And we went through that process. And that was really great to sort of learn from everybody at Film London. And I think that was that was the first time that I'd had sort of any outside influence, I guess, or any kind of um, government body, so to speak, or any other company sort of be involved in my projects. Um, so, yeah, I think that that really sort of gave me and, and Michelle, I think, the step that we needed to, to sort of be taken seriously, I guess, and and um, work with, with more people than, than just ourselves. Um, and have the support from you guys obviously was completely invaluable to to our whole journey we've we've learned so much from um from everybody at film london over the years it feels like you know we're part of the family we've been there gosh i can't even remember when when baby gravy was 2016 17 it feels like we've been there a long time (laughs) (laughs) um michelle i'm going to come to you on this one like people might have made a lot of short films and they feel like they're ready to make a feature how does that What's that learning curve like? How does it compare making a small budget short film to making a very small budget feature film? Um, I mean, everything is more. <laughs> I think that's the, the, simplest, <laughs> the simplest way to put it. Take what you do on a short film and then multiply it by 100. More organisation, more prep, probably more cast, more crew. And it's about learning to, to scale up successfully um, also putting um, people around you that that really know what they're doing. So, you know, your heads of department and making sure that you're communicating with them more. Um, it, you do wise to have people who have worked on features before if it's your first feature as well. Um, so, yeah, I did a lot of prep. I asked a lot of writer, directors and producers about their experiences doing their first feature and then you know, just so that I could prepare myself for anything. Um, and I plan five steps ahead anyway, but for, for the feature, I had to be like 10 steps ahead. And, and we're, well, a lot of the time it was just the two of us. So, you know, it was, it was us kind of leading the helm on, on everything until we got our amazing crew and cast on board. That's brilliant. Um, so let's talk about Sweetheart now. Uh, how would you pitch Sweetheart? Like if someone hasn't heard anything about it, how do you, how, do, how would you explain it to someone? It's an ode to the British holiday park um, and uh, first loves. Um, and hopefully it's, a, you know, it's a relatable a joyful, light-hearted family comedy that that people can hopefully relate to, whether you're you're gay or, or or not, you know. I well, every time we saw a script from you, Marley, we were all just completely smitten with your writing. You've got such a brilliant ear for dialogue, and the scripts are often really funny, like for through Baby Gravy and the original uh, film that that never was, and then Sweetheart. Um, they're also very very funny. Like you've got a real ear for sort of comedy and dialogue. Is that like? Do you intend to write a funny film, or do you even when you're writing drama or whatever, does it just come out slightly funny because that's you? Like, how does how does your process work? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I normally, I normally sort of write the dramatic beats first, I guess, um, 
and then when I'm writing it kind of sometimes it feels too um it feels either too dramatic too melodramatic too kind of serious for me and I and I want to throw a joke in there just to kind of to, to mess it up because it feels a bit too sentimental perhaps um so I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a bit of both I think I'm kind of just naturally looking for the comedy in a lot of what I write and and I tend to laugh at really inappropriate things and at inappropriate times so I think so I think um yeah generally I do it kind of just it just so sort of happens that that it ends up being a bit funny and I and I like that and I like when when people are funny and awkward and 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 socially awkward and and I, f- I find a lot of humor in that and and in the everyday in the everyday interactions that you have with people that might not necessarily be anything you know amazing but it could just be a straightforward interaction with a stranger but um sometimes there's there's great comedy to be found in those moments so yeah totally it seems to me like I, I don't know if you do this but it's so based in like it's so grounded in reality and the kind of thing that you hear day to day that it just people are just funny whether they intend to be or not yeah, um, yeah. do you take notes when you're sitting in a cafe like over here do you sticky beat listening to people or <laughs> or is it all just in filed in your memory from your childhood and your whole life yeah some uh, people say that a lot don't they like oh, I sit on the tube and I oh, just like people watch and I write things but I, I I don't really do that massively. I kind of just I kind of just think about the awkward people in my life and how they react to things. And you know, like uh, I live in Tottenham and it's such a kind of multicultural area. There's so many different types of people around here, and and I kind of just I kind of just think about the people I know and how they and how they talk to me and how they how I see them talk to other people. So. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't kind of sit there really and study people, but I guess I. I guess I sort of try and um, think about the people I know in my life and how I've, and how I see them behaving and, and, and talking generally day to day. Um, can you tell me a bit like who are your references? Either the people that you were informed by, sort of coming up, or like did you have any reference points in mind, particularly around Sweetheart? From a filmmaker point of view, I think like. I, I guess I kind of always wanted to write uh, the coming of age film that I didn't see when I grew up. Um, and I sort of grew up with a lot of like John Hughes films and, um, you know, uh, the coming of age love stories of kind of American indie cinema, I guess, you know, 10 things I hate about you and she's all that and all the kind of cheesy rom-com stuff. Um, and I, you know, I always kind of wanted to see myself reflected in those films and I never felt like I, I was. So I kind of had this feeling about writing a sort of indie coming of age, but from a British perspective. Um, and in terms of kind of filmmakers, I guess, you know, there's a film called Ghost World that uh, that I really liked. Stuff like Lady Bird, Submarine, you know, f- films where the coming of age films where there's a uh, centred around a, a sort of outsider I guess is always something that I was um, really interested in. And then in terms of the family dynamics, there's a film called Little Miss Sunshine, which I like to reference because I think that's great. It's a great example of um, of kind of a dysfunctional family, but with a lot of heart at the centre of it. Um, so, yeah, there's a few kind of different different films that were sort of in my head, really. But I always I always kind of just wanted to make a an uplifting and and 
joyful coming of age film for for the for the next generation something that i didn't have when when i was younger so we watched a lot of a lot of coming of age or first features as well in the lead up um but yeah mostly coming of age comedy family dramas the way way back was one was one that like yeah is a good reference and then yeah lady bird look my sunshine kind of all those all those dysfunctional family happy stories. So tell me a little bit about, uh, you've mentioned the finance journey already, Michelle. Tell us about the production. You, uh, for those who don't know, um, Sweetheart was made under our microwave scheme, um, which challenges filmmakers to make a film for um, a micro budget. Obviously, that's going to be difficult for anyone, let alone on a first feature, but you guys really nailed it with such an amazing, uh, the film looks so polished and that you were very clever about the locations. Can you tell us a bit about how you approached trying to pull that off? Yeah, Michelle definitely can. I mean, the you know, one lucky thing we had was setting it all in, in one space. I think that was, that really, that that helped. That was a sort of in our favour that, that we sort of had one location in mind that we needed to find. And I think we were just, very lucky with the guy that owns the the holiday park he'd been there for about 30 years and and uh and he was really sort of um willing to to have us there and 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 to accommodate us so um but you know Michelle Michelle um is the one that that talked talked her way to to getting it all um all made and all together so she's probably a better person to ask yeah I mean it was all a bit of a blur I guess which is why I have to kind of dig deep to remember how I pulled it off but I guess it was knowing knowing actually knowing from Baby Gravy when we did the short film because that's the first time we used a post-production house um and for the grade and the sound mix so knowing from there that I would have to hold back a majority of the budget for post-production I think it helped me a lot because I was I was quite stringent with the budget from from very early on knowing that something would come up and it did come up and it was music um and thank god i I had that little bit of cash kind of saved for (laughs) for the soundtrack because marley just kept adding songs and i just couldn't say no because they were all amazing um so it was just (laughs) trying to to find a way to get it you know and it's it's a lot of it is is compromise because you know it's a first feature it's micro budget and we've got uh 10 characters (laughs) we've got two main four supporting and six you know, yeah. other characters and it's like what were we thinking having so many involved but it was so necessary to the story that it was yeah. just <laughs> you know it was about finding that compromise and making it work um and yeah a little and yeah you've got to try and try and get the director's vision as much as possible and that mainly just means squeezing favors and deals out of people and the good thing was that the story was brilliant and the script was so great that so many people related to it and so many people wanted to work on it, you know, and and we had support from the beginning all the way through to the end, even at film festivals and, you know, and, and everyone's just loved loved the story so much that it hasn't been that, that hard, <laughs> she says. Yeah, and I think we had a lot of... Um you know, we had a lot of generosity from a lot of people, you know, including the people that let us st- stay down in fresh water, as well as, you know, cast and crew. Um, and, you know, our, 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 the guys that done our soundtrack toy drum um, and various bands that gave us our th- th- their songs to, 
to play in the film. You know, we 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 did ask for a lot of favors, but we you know we are also got a lot of favors back back from people, and um, you know we're super super grateful for everybody that that wanted to be a part of it, and um, and yeah. Let's talk about the shoot itself for a bit because you've got such a wonderful cast and I, not only we were looking at the rushes, but also we were seeing some of the sort of behind the scenes on set photography that you got from your amazing uh, photographer, Chloe. Um, It just looked like you were having the best time down there and actually makes me want to go to Freshwater to go on holiday because it looks like you were having so much fun. Tell us about the shoot. Yeah, I mean, we... You know, we stayed on the holiday part for, you know, a month. Actors and, and stuff were in and out. But, you know, all of the crew, we were there for, for a good month. Um, and there was literally no phone signal. So we only had each other to talk to. Um, so, so yeah, I think it kind of felt like a, a bit like a holiday, kind of like a working holiday. Um, I think it... it for me, it really helped everyone being so close and everyone not sort of leaving at the end of the day and going off to different hotels. I think the fact that we could all sort of chill for a bit at the end of the day and sit on the beach and on the weekends have a barbecue on the beach and everyone got a little bit of time to hang out, but then they could disappear to your own caravan. But you'd see them, you'd be walking around the holiday park, you'd bump into somebody and it kind of, you know, we kind of built up our, our own sort of little little family over over the few weeks that we were there and it was kind of a bit sad when we had to leave it behind because uh because it sort of um yeah it just felt like it was it was home and it was it was um yeah I think we all really enjoyed being down there together hopefully let's talk about the reception the film has had because it you know having gone on such a big journey with this and having such a fun time making it which I really think comes across in the film when you watch it it's been so wonderful to see you guys enjoying such a great festival run. You won the Audience Award at Glasgow. News just in. You won the award at Dinard this week. Um, how has it been just having your baby finally out in the world and having the reception it's had? Crazy. I mean, it's so it's so mad because something that you've worked on for, for so many years um, and then suddenly, yeah, it's out in cinemas and, and people are tweeting about it. We were quite lucky in and unlucky in that we hit post-production for Sweetheart just as the pandemic hit. Um, so we were kind of finishing it off and then it was kind of a will they, won't they release it during the pandemic, during lockdown. And um, yeah, we just kind of took a risk um, and did the world premiere at Glasgow Film Festival. And I think it, it really massively helped us um, because it was such an amazing reception and and so early on um, and then the audience award. And, and it's just been it's just been lovely to, to have people say such kind things about the film and to enjoy watching it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's been completely unexpected. I think I don't think we ever really expected it to be so well received or to to reach so many people I think we we certainly didn't think that we would be seeing it in in cinemas let alone you know mainstream cinemas it's just completely out of our expectations I think we just knew that we wanted to make this film and uh and that was kind of it and we didn't really think any any further than that I know that sounds really weird but we kind of just thought well you know we just need to make it and then we don't know what happens next (laughs) um but um, but no, it's been it's been amazing, and I think it's it's a, it's a really bizarre thing to see people responding so well to it, and and all the messages that I've received and stuff. Because I just remember the 
years that it was just me and Michelle in in you know in Michelle's flat or or in my flat and just you know constant conversations on the phone and you know so many times we we didn't think that we would you know get through it uh, and I think um yeah it's a it's a really very strange process to kind of go from something that's just between you two and you don't ever think that it's going to be anything um uh and and then it's suddenly something and and people are responding really well to it it's it's no it's it's great and and to hear from from people that I you know I made it for which is you know younger younger gay girls and I to be sort of getting the messages that I'm getting from them now it's like it's exactly sort of why I made it so it's it's yeah it's a very uh weird weird experience but it's lovely well I hope that there are people listening to this who are sitting in flats and bedrooms and wherever right now trying to get their films off the ground and um, what would you say to those people I'd say don't give up you know look after yourself and um and yeah just keep going and and find the people that that support you that want to support you and and your vision and and you will find them just just keep don't give up yeah I mean literally keep calm and carry on because film is such an emotional process it's like it it will take everything out of you to make your first feature film um and it is about sticking together, you know, you know, yeah. director and producer and, and just doing it all as a team and taking the risks together and, and checking in with each other to make sure that you're both not going crazy. Um, and just, yeah, when you feel like when you feel like it's 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 not happening, just take a step back. I think that's what we that's what we learned to do eventually was to just, OK, let's take a step back. Let's see if we can find inspiration or motivation in in something else and then just keep going and and just keep working hard at it hopefully we've shown that a micro budget film you know can make it to the cinema um and long live british indie films that's brilliant thank you so much guys so nice to talk to you you're very welcome And a huge thanks to Marley and Michelle for talking to us. Sweetheart will shortly be available to watch on video on demand and you can watch their short film Baby Gravy for free on the Film London website. Next up, Sarab Kakar discusses how comedy shows get made and much more. Sarab Kakar was interviewed by our digital coordinator, Charlie Ralph. Hi, Sarab. Hi. Hi, Charlie. I would like to talk to you about comedy. You are an executive producer at Big Talk, and I was just wondering if you could explain a little about what your current role involves. Yes, it's um, uh, my job is to to make comedy television programs, comedy, straightforward half hour comedy, or things that drift into comedy drama, uh, and anything on the spectrum in between. Um, and uh, I think an executive producer's job varies from company to company, but essentially what we're doing is is following a a a show from cradle to to hopefully not grave to long life and then hopefully eventually grave in that you know finding writers and talent helping and enabling them because ultimately our job is we're enablers rather than rather than the talent ourselves helping enabling that talent whether that's a writer or a stand-up to you know to to develop an idea that they love um, discussing it with a broadcaster, selling it to a broadcaster, developing it with them, then making the show, and that 
it's from you know down from the the creative parts of that so finding a director and casting and all of those processes that we do in conjunction with some fantastically talented heads of department through to the physical production of it budgets you know managing locations and and post-production and then delivering the show to the broadcaster yeah i mean you talk about enabling talent and helping them achieve like their goals i was wondering as an exec producer how much of a hand do you have in like the creative side of what they produce do you like make edits or contribute uh, editorially or is it more of a hands-off kind of situation I think I think it varies. I mean, it varies from person to person, writing writer to writer, writing team to writing team. Some people want a sounding board and don't really need much by way of uh, contribution. Some people actively, you know, brilliant writers as well. I'm not just talking about levels of experience. Some people crave creative input, but that input is always a is always. I think if you're a producer or an exec producer, it's always enabling rather than. You know, the worst thing that can happen, I think, is that if you're a a frustrated writer, desperate for your own ideas to make their way onto screen, that doesn't work. But if you're, you know, you have enough of an understanding of story and character and and comedy to be able to to, to talk to a writer or a creator and say, actually, I've got these three ideas. Do they work for you? Do they help? Are they improving this? No, et cetera, and so on. So it's there's no one size fits all for for writers and talent. Right. So it's a case of like sussing out that relationship early on with the talent, what they prefer. What they prefer and also what they need. Uh, So some people are exceptional writers of dialogue and need a bit of support with structure. And and again, that's, that's something that, that you, you feel out early on in a process of working with someone for the first time. And if you're working with someone for a second or third time, then maybe you've got that process a bit more down pat. Um, but some, so some people write exceptional dialogue, just need a bit of help putting it into some kind of order, some kind of story structure, but you don't, you're not writing it for them. What you're doing is discussing it with them and saying, oh, okay, these are the characters you've created. So let's discuss the kind of thing. So you're helping people do their own job. And actually, you know, a lot of writers do that, you know, you'll do that with them the first time you work with them, maybe the second time, but after a while they they start to do that themselves because ultimately if you're in a, if you're doing your job properly you're a support network rather than a micromanager some people do the opposite some people write s- exceptional structure and exceptional um uh story and just sometimes need a little bit of help in characterization but ultimately again it's it's support rather than anything else so say you're having like a first meeting with someone who you're looking to work with what kind of attitude do you want them to bring to that meeting what kind of energy do you want them to bring that's a very good question so um that's a that's a very good question actually because i don't think any i've ever been asked about the kind of energy that people want when you're meeting someone for the first time particularly someone who's inexperienced what i want to know is do you have you got characters in your head or in this idea that you love and by love, I mean you don't need to like them. They don't need to be, your, you know, they don't want, they don't have to be nice. Whatever the thing is that they that they are, you need to want desperately want to write them, and you need to want desperately to tell their stories. If I ask you questions about them, you should have a dozen answers. Oh yeah, so if what would they do if this happened? Well, they would do this and this and this, but they wouldn't do that because blah blah blah. That doesn't mean huge swathes of backstory because that could be tiresome and not necessarily uh, useful, but you need to want to know what they're going to do. And the, the pitfalls that people fall into, I think, are turning up with an idea, but without any 
without any characters to populate it. Oh, I used to work in a fire station, say, and I want to write about fire stations because they're funny. Okay, so who are the people that populate that? Oh, I haven't thought that through. That's a, that's a bad attitude. Whereas if someone comes in and says, I used to work with this person in a fire station and they were like this, and then they had a their partner was like this, and then they had this other person who was like this, and and they can talk at length about the people, then I think that that's the kind of attitude I want. I want someone who is ultimately fascinated with people, but particularly fascinated with the people that they want to write about. Right. And you speak about that knowledge of the characters is that adaptability? Is that because you need to know if they can make changes if necessary? Like you need to know if those characters can be switched around, they can be they can be adaptable. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, almost the opposite. Our characters shouldn't be adaptable. If you've if you've got some characters you're in love with, they should be they should be who they are. They should be three-dimensional, solid human beings. And so, you know, what one of the one of the worst things that you can get in a script that you read is you can change the names and the dialogue still makes sense. You know, if you if you switch the names in a scene around, the scene should make no sense whatsoever. Because ultimately you should say, This person here is the only character in this show that could do this. Or this is the only character in the show that would say this. So when so ultimately when a character does something, and look, I'm I'm this is not script writing one oh one because I'm there are many, many better better qualified people to do that um but what as as an exec when i read a show when i read something i want to know that i can at the end of reading a script i could tell you enough about the characters that if someone says would this person drive a porsche you'd go no no they wouldn't drive a porsche because they would consider it flashy what they want is that they would drive this and i'd get that from the script so i would get the feeling i know them a little bit better we're talking about getting started in the industry. We're talking about uh, new starts. You had an interesting start. You started out in engineering before moving over to comedy producing, which, I mean, yeah, quite a career change. Um, what influenced you to make that decision? Was there like a crystallizing moment when you realized you had to like make that change? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't very good at engineering. I mean, I, I um, uh, you know, I'd gone through university, got a sp- sponsorship by a uh, ICI. They very kindly gave me a job at the end of university. I went off to do the job. I had all the qualifications, you know, I've got a master's in chemical engineering and I got to the, the site and I thought, oh, I'm not very good at this. Right. I, don't really, I don't really understand this. And I'm, you know, I, this is not the right place for me. Um, and I dabbled with bits and pieces of comedy at university. Like a lot of people, I tried my hand at it. I wasn't terrible, but not good. Um, and many of my friends, uh, were much, much better than me. And I remember thinking, well, I like hanging around with these people. I like, I feel I've got something I can contribute to, um, to the world that they operate in, but I don't really want to do it because I think I would be mediocre. So, um, I applied for a bunch of ads in the Guardian, which is the old fashioned way that people used to apply to jobs when I was, uh, when I was a child and, um, and got offered a job producing live comedy did that had a really good time we were pretty successful then got offered a job in television and uh, and and here I am today um and one of the great joys about working in television is um is I think that you don't need to do endless qualifications to 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 work as a producer or to work in 90% of the jobs here I'm sure there are some heads of department that are hugely qualified and and quite rightly so but to do what I do I think you 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 just need to be willing to listen and learn and adapt and and think quickly and make decisions and um be be I guess um 
God, this is going to sound like a terrible thing, but ego free enough to, to, to want to enable other people to do their job well. I know no one's ego free. That's, that's a nonsense. And I'm sure anyone listening to this who knows me would, would laugh their heads off at the thought that I'm ego free. But, um, uh, but in this idealized version of myself that I'm constructing for the purposes of this podcast, <laughs> you need to be ego free enough to want to help other people without necessarily needing to stamp yourself on everything. I mean, if you do feel the need to do that, then you should be a writer. And there are lots of very brilliant writers who are, who, and I wouldn't say it's egotistical of them, but they, they're clear in their, they're clear in their vision and that's what they want to do. And they're brilliant. That's why they're brilliant. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was actually going to, going to move on to that when you said like producing live comedy is all about listening and learning and adapting. Do you feel like, cause you said you did some stand up for a little bit, but you, you weren't that good at it. Um, but do you feel like the skills that you developed as a stand-up were transferable in any way to production, or is it like a totally different ball game? I think it's. I think it's. It's that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I would say weirdly, um, the skills I learned as an engineer were more transferable to, um, or a scientist uh, were more transfer. Because well, I was, did chemistry before chemical engineering. Um, are more transferable to production than the skills as a stand-up. Um, I think it just takes a different set of muscles to stand on a stage and respond and react to an audience and to to pick your way through. I think that's an element of confidence. So I think, you know, I did, I did enough stand-up to feel confident talking to people. Um, and I think you need a certain amount of confidence. But I think one of the things you learn as an engineer and as a scientist is just to be... Um, is to is to be considered and forensic and to think things through um and to and to and to adopt an element of process that i think um aren't necessarily useful in the more creative sides of the business I, lots of writers will tell you about their processes and they and, and and i'm sure that's right um but i think i think i've used more of my engineering background than than i have any any of my miserable attempts at stand up and that's that's quite interesting because you talk about your chemist experience and before when we were talking about comedy you were talking about using an example of like a fireman working in a fire station mm-hmm. do you find that having a non-arts career is helpful in a creative capacity what's another very good question these are very good questions you're asking um you. i don't think it's helpful but i don't think it's unhelpful and i'm i'm aware that that's a that's a, a poor excuse for an answer but I think there is when you when people are studying when they're at school um, or if they go to university when they're at university or even afterwards, there's this sort of odd divide that gets put in pretty artificially. And I think it's part of the our education system where if you're an art student, you do art. If you do a science student, you do science and never the twain shall meet. But that's just not how any of this works. There are ways of thinking that the art students have, and this is why you know the, the, the underfunding of the of, of, of arts studies and the and, and the sort of focus on STEM in schools is so bizarre. There are ways of thinking in arts, the sort of uh, the idea of creativity, the idea of taking um, uh, uh, of looking outside the box is such a bad phrase and so hackneyed, but but the idea that you don't have to follow things through methodically in the way things have always been done, you can, that sometimes you're presented with a blank page, which you often are in the arts and you very, you know, you very rarely are when you're learning science. Certainly you do when you're, when you're better at it, but when you're learning science, it's just, here are some numbers or here is the thing, here is some formulae, crunch them. 
right. do it. It's all process. Whereas art, it's like, here's an abstract idea. There's actually <laughs> a lot of science when you get further through it is abstract ideas. It is the blank page of the, of the essay that hasn't been written. And, and a lot of the arts is about thinking scientifically and not just methodically, but thinking in a way that feels um, breaking problems down to first, first principles. You can do that with creative problems as well as you can with um, uh, artist, uh, with, with scientific problems, sorry. So I think that divide is weird and artificial and, and I don't like it at all. And I think there are some terrific, mm-hmm. um, terrifically talented people working in the arts who have scientific backgrounds. And I'm sure they would say that that barrier just felt weird and artificial. Dara Breen has a degree, I think, in maths. Uh, ben Miller was doing a PhD in physics when I first met him at university. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and there are other people as well with engineering and science backgrounds who do, who, who, you know, do really well. I, I think that divide is weird. I was going to talk about your most recent work as an exec producer that I saw, mm. which was on the Goes Wrong show. Mm. Um, I was wondering if we could use that as kind of like a case study and you could chat through like how, what your relationship is with that show. What's your experience been working on it? Well, it's been a really joyful experience and, and actually a huge learning curve. You know, I've been doing this for a long time and yet I've learned an enormous amount on this show from not only the the brilliant uh, people at Mischief Theatre who are the writers and creators um, of The Goes Wrong Show, but also from a lot of the people that we've brought on board. There's a fantastic production designer, Dennis DeGroote, who won an RTS award for The Goes Wrong Show. I've learned so much from him and his team. So I've been to see um, Play That Goes Wrong in, in, in town, God knows, eight, eight years ago. Loved it. Asked to meet the writers uh, a few days later. Met them, loved them, thought they were terrific. We discussed a few ideas. Um, we started to develop a few things. Nothing came of them, not for any reason other than, you know, not everything comes with every idea. And they made a couple of one-offs um, for the BBC, uh, got a series and um, were on the lookout for a production partner, for someone to help them with it. And I had a relationship with them, so they came to Big Talk. Um, we discussed, and we are there are co-produ- co-production partners, so Mischief Screen um, and I, and and we produce it between us. But what they were trying to do is do six half-hour, very physical studio shows uh, it, 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 across a period of time, which is no one's done normally. You, if you're doing a sitcom in a studio, and studio sitcom is quite an old school way of making things, you build a set maybe you build a set maybe a couple of guest sets and uh, that's it for a whole series you have some scripts the actors rehearse you rehearse for a few days you camera rehearse you rehearse the cameras moving around and on Thursday night or whatever the day of the week it is you perform it in front of a studio audience you maybe do the scenes every now and again you know you may you may repeat a few scenes do a few takes of things the record takes two or three hours you go away you edit it and that's how things have worked you know for centuries centuries decades no one's, <laughs> making, no one's been making half hour comedy for centuries that would be yeah. um uh what we were trying to do instead was very different in that not only were we having a different set for each um show but each of those sets had to be unfeasibly complicated you know bits of it had to collapse had to move the shows were full of stunts and visual effects and and sound effects and bits of it had to there were trap doors and boxes and things that had to collapse and 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 um like a, a stair lift that had to hurtle down and project a man through a wall um uh, uh, banisters that had to collapse and a person had to fall off them and land safely and then and then get up 
ghosts that had to appear and their heads had to spin around. <laughs> All of these effects are hugely complicated. And if you were filming a show normally, you would, you know, with on a single camera, um, you would spend, you know, ages rehearsing and planning and rehearsing and planning and you'd shoot it in a very careful way so that it, everything looked like it was happening. What we had to do was make those things look like they were happening live. And they were happening live in the vast majority of the time. They were mostly, sometimes they weren't, sometimes we had to record them the day before, but often we were having to do them in front of a studio audience, which meant having to completely rethink how they were done. So if you want to hurl someone down a, a flight of stairs on a, a while sitting on a, an, an out-of-control chairlift and then project them through a wall, normally you'd do that in three or four stages and you shoot each bit individually. What we were having to do was do it in front of an audience two or three times uh, without stopping so that it didn't look like we had an army of stunt people and special effects people behind us. So we're inventing new techniques. And a, a really good example of this is we did a, sh a show where half the set was at 90 degrees. And what we did was we tilted the camera around to 90 degrees so that the people looked like they were vertical, like normal. But because they were actually sideways, um, all the things, you know, things, gravity works differently. So things were dropping through frame and across frame and people were falling out of shot and all of that thing. So, you know, the engineering required to build that set, you know, done brilliantly by our riggers and by Dennis, our, 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 our um, production designer, is, I mean, that's so complicated because, you know, you've got people who are 15 feet up and have to be properly secured. The bits of set have to not fall over and collapse. And you have to do all of that and make it safe and be funny. We had people hanging upside down. So all of that required, you know, us to, in the process, go through each script and spend an enormous amount of time working at not only how we were going to do things, but how we were going to do things safely and how we were going to do things to make them funny and how we were going to be able to do the vast majority of it in front of an audience of people. Um, so that's that, that's that process. And we sort of reinvented the way that studio sitcoms are shot and that we had a very different uh, um, production and shooting schedule. We hired some fantastic people and asked them to work in a way that they'd never worked before. Um, we had to make sure that our cast had two weeks to rehearse everything. So when we got in front of a, uh, an audience, they had rehearsed it with such precision that these really complex stunts didn't need to be broken down. They could be done at the same time. And, you know, the cast are so brilliant at this stuff anyway. Uh, so that's that's the sort of the story of that. Um, and the BBC were hugely supportive and just sort of let us go off and do it and gave us great feedback on it. And um, and luckily it seems to have done well. Is that, has that answered your question? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, Goes Wrong Show is a show with a lot of practicalities. It's a lot of stunts. There's a lot of technical elements. I was wondering about how much you think about those practicalities in the early stages when people are pitching. How much do those practicalities come into play? So that's a very good question, and one that actually there's a there are many schools of thought on how you, as to how you do this. There is a school of thought amongst a lot of producers, which is never let the practicalities enter in at all. It should all be about the creative, and that's fine. Those people are often very good producers, and they do very good work. There are other people who start say, look, there's no point us going down a long way down the road with a show that we can't afford to make. So what's the point? All this work will be wasted if we if we carry on with our show set on a, a riverboat on the Mississippi with a with a riverboat full of rogue elephants. You know, we, we, we can't make the show. And so what's the point? And, you know, they're probably right as well. 
I think that the, that the truth is somewhere in the middle, but it's all to do with the process and all to do with the order in which you discuss things. And I think this sort of feeds into how we like to do, or how I like to do script notes with writers and how we progress a project from inception to the end. And, 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 and it sort of feeds into this level of practicality. So we tend to start, I tend to start, um, and I'm, with big picture questions and those big picture questions are usually who are these people why do you want to write about them why are we going to find them interesting why are they funny what do they do and because we're starting with big picture questions often that does that means not drilling into any I said drilling in I'm so sorry it's a terrible phrase but not digging into any of the I'm going to use the word granular now and that's even worse (laughs) Any of the granular detail of a script, that's not fiddling with lines or fiddling with stage directions or going, oh, well, there's a vintage car in here and we can't afford it. That's irrelevant for the moment. Get your big picture stuff first. The big creative things. Why is why is anyone going to buy this? And also, why is anyone going to watch it? What is it about the show that makes it fun, interesting, exciting, uh, you know, uh, watchable? Those questions are fantastic fun to answer. They're fantastic fun to discuss. That is a fun, jolly, joyous part of it. But as you move through the process, you start to refine the questions because there's no point in having questions about detail in your first set of notes or conversations on an idea, because the thing that you're worrying about or arguing about might not be there in three stages time. It might have gone. It's an idea that might have gone in the bin. It's a character that might not exist anymore. Um, what you have to do as a producer is work out the correct place at each of the points of conversation to bring up particular things. So with the Goes Wrong show, the show that's in 90 degrees, when we got that script in, quite a few people involved in the process said, this is impossible, we can't do this. But in conversation with the guys, it became so clear that of all the parts of that script that were negotiable, that they thought, actually, we don't need this huge thing to do this joke, or this joke works equally well with this slightly more, you know, slightly cheaper, slightly more readily buildable thing. That joke, that thing, that central core premise was non-negotiable. So what our job then is to go, okay, we know that we can do something with all these eight things, but that's the one thing we have to achieve and we have to find out how to achieve it. What we didn't do was throw it in the bin, bin at the beginning, but we also didn't take their script at the beginning and say, yes, we have to do every single facet of this. We interrogated it and we interrogated it by discussing the story and the characters and the world. And we kept going until such point we go, okay, this one has to stay. So now we're going to go off and do this. I think that's the best way of doing it. So you bring practicalities in at the point where they become relevant and they're not always relevant at the start. Just one more question. Um, Again, I know we've got a lot of people early on in the industry looking to sort of break in listening. So I'm wondering, there are like lots, there's lots of different styles of TV comedy. And naturally, some of it is currently more in fashion and some not so much right now. So I was just thinking, what kind of thing do you wish you saw on TV more right now? Um, The the fashionability or otherwise of comedy is... um is something that weirdly gets debated by people who don't work in comedy. I don't think any of us who work in it, um, I, I don't think so. I, I hate to speak for my entire profession, but I don't <laughs> think writers and directors and producers ever sit around and debate what's hot and what's fashionable. We just like things that are good. So when we talk about shows, 
we'll often become quite excited about someone who's done something slightly differently. We don't decide that something's fashionable or something's cool. I think cool is the death of comedy. Um, we don't decide that something's cool or something's fashionable. What we do is say, oh, that's interesting. Ah, oh, that's a technique that would help us do. Or that's a way of storytelling that would actually make this idea work a bit better. That's clever. So you don't necessarily ape something that you've seen. You might take an idea or a bit of it or a piece. There are some people, and luckily, these are few and far between, who are in, in positions of power at broadcasters, and like I say, they're luckily few and far between, who will look at a hit show and say, let's do five more like that, please. Whereas that's not how we think. So we tend not to think like that. When you're then talking about what you would like to see on television, all I can do is then say, there are shows that I love that I don't see. And that's not because... I think it's a, not a fashionable thing. It's just, oh, I love this show. I wish there were more shows like a bit like this. So I love the pace and energy of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I love it. I love lots of other shows. I know, you know, lots of British shows, lots of American shows. I think Ghost is amazing. Fleabag was incredible. Um, I love Dave and Rami and lots of, you know, fantastically, there's so many brilliant, varied things. This country was amazing. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't see a British version of with of the kind of um, pace and gag count of something like Brooklyn Nine Nine. So it's a show I watch with my kids who are you know fifteen and twenty now. So you know we've been watching shows like since since the start. I think it's been going for about eight nine years now. So we've been watching it since they were small. And it's a show that we still love as a family, and yet feels modern and sophisticated and doesn't feel at all childish and childlike. So you can watch it. I can watch it with my 20 year old, but I could also watch it with my younger daughter when she was eight, if that makes sense. It sort of, it doesn't, there's no gulf in, 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 you know, this, it doesn't feel like a show that I used to watch with my younger kids. And, and now I can't watch with my older kids. I don't know that we do enough of those. I think ghost is probably the nearest equivalent on the television. I would also say the goes wrong show, but that's something that I make. So I would say that, but I think ghost and goes wrong show are, are, are the, the two shows of that kind of tone that, full of jokes, great characters. You can watch it with with all of your family, but it doesn't feel like a kid's show. It doesn't feel childish or childlike or lowest common denominator or anything. You know, you don't feel like you're compromising. I wish we did more of those. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. And thanks for having me on. And thanks for asking such good questions. Thank you to Sarab for that chat. Next week, as it's approaching Halloween, we're going to be talking horror. Join us as we chat to two directors who release breakthrough horror films this year. The woman behind Video Nasty's throwback sensor, Prano Bailey Bond, and the man who shot terrifying and revolutionary horror host entirely over Zoom, Rob Savage. Until then, this has been Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London, and I'm Adrian Wooten.